time we stop spreading fear and acknowledge some facts. This is not about freedom or personal choice. You know, you can't work anymore unless you do what I say. That's essentially what a vaccine passport is. Wear masks obviously is a violation of your personal rights, and so is being locked down. You've been patient. Your patience is wearing thin. Open society back up. Restore our freedoms. End this madness. G'day, I'm George Christensen, host of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked, where we're lifting the veil on the Wuhan flu. And we're finding all sorts of things underneath that uh, are nefarious, like removing our liberties, removing our freedoms, big government overreach. And we wonder how on earth this has all happened in Australia. Uh, I mean, we've tried to pride ourselves on being the larrikins, the roustabouts, uh, the people who stand up to authority. But maybe something different has actually been the case in this country. Maybe we aren't who we've thought we've been. And that's why it's probably good to talk to a student of history and culture. I'm going to do exactly that in this episode with Dr. Stephen Shavura. He's been a lecturer in both Australian history and also in political studies. And he's got a very interesting take on the factors that have actually driven this pandemic and the aftermath to it in this country. Well, the pandemic and all the response to it has been a very, very interesting moment, to say the least, in Australian history. And so it's with great pleasure that I'm joined by historian Dr. Stephen Shavura. Thanks very much for joining us, Stephen. Now, you've lectured uh, extensively in both Australian history, uh, in the Australian political system. Um, you were... Uh, you also know a bit about English history uh, from your uh, doctorate and your academic background. Uh, tell me, um, what can we compare this moment to right now uh, in, in uh, other great and terrible moments in history? That's a, that's a great question, um, and it's not an easy one to answer. And first, George, can I just uh, say thank you uh, for uh, bringing me onto your show? I'm really honoured. And thanks for the uh, courageous stances that you've taken over the years uh, in the interests of uh, liberty, in the interests of morality. It's a hard thing to do, and you've done a great service to Australia. And I'm, for, I for one, am very, very grateful for all you've done. So thank you for thank that. You, you know, um, the other day I was sort of thinking about uh, the way the unvaccinated are increasingly being demonized in Australia, the way that people are just rushing towards getting vaccinated without asking any questions about um, you know, who most needs to be vaccinated, uh, who, uh, who is most susceptible to being you know, seriously affected by COVID, that th this kind of mania has taken over Australia. And the closest thing that I can think of is actually, believe it or not, World War I. When I think of, you know, when you study World War I, you, you first learn that there's just this mad rush uh, for people to go to a war uh, about which they knew very little. And there was an incredible sort of group dynamic in Australia to be absolutely loyal to this war, to be loyal to this empire. And yeah, I don't want to diminish the fact that these were very, very brave men and very sacrificial women as well, whose husbands and sons went over. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. 
but there was definitely a kind of war and empire mania that went on that meant that those who questioned, who asked questions like, um, will Australians make much of a material difference to the outcome of the war, for example? Or are we prepared for uh, what the, ch the challenges that men are going to face when they return to Australia, sort of uh, broken and wounded and traumatized? These are the questions that Arch the Catholic Archbishop Daniel Mannix was asking at the time. Australians yeah. basically just called those, those people traitors. Um, they said that they're putting the lives of men on the front at risk by damaging the war effort. And the other thing is that those men who, for whatever reason they had, uh, maybe they were an only son or and they didn't want their parents potentially to lose their only son. Maybe they were afraid of being killed on the front line. For whatever reasons they had, those men who didn't go to war were often publicly shamed and ridiculed, given white feathers by women, avoided in polite company, particularly by women. And that stigma of being a coward uh, followed them for their whole lives. And, and when we study World War I, we often note uh, those kinds of uh, manias that sort of took over. Uh, another thing that happened was that those who were deemed potentially a threat to the war effort, so Germans in particular living in South Australia, they didn't have to have done anything uh, other than just be a German. Well, they were put in internment camps, they were locked up. And so when I think about sort of a historical analog in terms of what's going on today, that's really the closest thing that I can think of in terms of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, people being locked up in their houses who aren't necessarily uh, any threat to public safety. I think of uh, people being demonized simply for not wanting to take the vaccination for whatever reason they may have had. And I just think of people unquestioningly uh, buying into uh, government and medical technocracy messaging about exactly why everyone should get vaccinated, that the hospital system is going to be uh, overloaded and, and just not asking questions that, that, that you, you would think would be worth asking. Um, so, so historically, I actually think that we're in a kind of period not unlike World War One, as strange as that might sound. Very interesting. I mean, what you're talking about uh, in, in the words you're using, mania, uh, means uh, that the theory that, uh, that has been put forward or popularised by Dr. Robert Malone, put forward by uh, Dr. Matthias, uh, Matthias Desmet at Ghent University in Belgium, uh, that there is some sort of mass formation psychosis, I guess, a, uh, a, a new and interesting term for uh, uh, the madness of a crowd, I guess. Uh, do, do you think that's what we're going through right now? Oh, I, I definitely think we're going through a cultural moment, a very, very strange cultural moment where a whole bunch of things historically <clears throat> are converging on one another. Um, now, like I said, um, th you know, this is not the first time something like this has happened in history. Uh, you can have it sort of, um, I, I think you, you sort of, you can have it on, on very sort of much smaller levels. So I would say that the, the, the climate apocalypse movement, where you get <laughs> tens and tens of thousands going into the city literally screaming, thinking that they're about to die. I think that's an instance of, of the madness of crowds, thinking that the climate issue, issue is somehow an existential threat to our survival. That is a kind of group dynamic that leads people to do um, very irrational and actually self-destructive things. I actually think Black Lives Matter, uh, particularly in the US after sort of the George Floyd incident, 
US just erupts into protests and violence. I think actually a lot of that was driven by a kind of group dynamic, uh, again, leading people to not ask questions, not question the major narrative, uh, to see things in very, very black and white terms and to consider anyone who questions the major narrative as literally a, an enemy of the just and the good. And I do actually think in the COVID situation, and all of this is totally consistent with the idea that COVID uh, is a serious virus that you know is worth addressing through rational public policy. So I'm not here minimizing uh, the the importance of, of or the the damage that can be done by COVID. But uh, as sort of the authors of this uh, quite good book, uh, The Great Panic, uh, yeah. what happened and what to do next? It's it's, it's a good book. I, I finished it recently. Uh, yeah, they they did point out that that that. You know, much of the Western world, not not everyone, but we, we, we went into a kind of collective panic. Um, why did we go into this panic? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. I think it's got a lot to do with the media, um, but I think it's also got a lot to do with other sort of broader cultural trends. I, I actually think I mean, I think the media stirred up a panic and, and we know that there was a sort of concerted effort among the media to make sure that the vaccine rollout would be as effective as possible which meant that any kind of news that might undermine people's um, uh, faith in the vaccinations or lead people to think that COVID uh, might not, not, may not be as serious as the doomsayers said it was, was basically repressed. But uh, I do think we got caught up into, in, in a collective panic. I think at very early on, we saw images in China. We saw people being welded into their homes. We saw people falling dead on the streets. Uh, we heard of bodies after heard, heard dozens and hundreds of bodies piling up in Italy. Um, I remember um, in January hearing about this new virus that had broken out, and I was being told that 25% of people who got the virus wound up in hospital, and of those people, 25% of people died, uh, which is an outrageously exaggerated figure of the numbers. And then basically when one country started going into lockdown. So when Italy started going into lockdown, that kind of licensed a bunch of other countries sort of domino effect to just basically start imitating one another and going into lockdown. And Brave is the national leader or the state leader who's not going to follow the leader and go into yeah. lockdown as well. So a whole bunch of things happened. And, and, sort of, and of course, it, 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 immediately, it immediately became very political, political because what leader, what politician uh, wants to be responsible for taking a risk and leading to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths. And those kinds of deaths were predicted. Neil Ferguson at Imperial College predicted something like 500,000 deaths in England if they didn't go into a lockdown. Uh, he predicted, I think, something like 2 million deaths in America. Uh, someone even predicted uh, deaths in the hundreds of thousands from memory here in Australia. And so I just think we all got caught up in a collective panic um, again, aided and abetted by the media. But, but another thing, George, is, is that I, I think it, a lot of people actually found the whole thing very exciting. I think a lot of people kind of felt the same way that a lot of Australians felt when we went to war. They kind of felt, wow, you know, this is, this is a fight that we can all fight together. I feel I'm part of something big again. My life's got some meaning. Um, we're all in this together. Sort of, it, it kind of acted as a surrogate for a declining nationalism, a, de a declining sense of national identity in Australia. So as a historian, I just saw a whole bunch of things converging to create this very strange moment in Australian and, and indeed Western history, a great panic, if you like. Do you think that it's uh, played out any 
any more or, or uh, to a greater extent in Australia? I mean, I've got a lot of friends and there's a lot of uh, uh, commentators over in the US that are sort of looking on very bemused, uh, shocked, horrified, actually, at some of the measures that are taking place in Australia. Do you think we've reacted to it worse than other nations? And if so, what's the cultural driver for that? What's the yeah. historical driver? Now, I've got a theory. I'm going to tell you my theory that yeah, I'm going yeah. to hear, hear from yeah. the expert. My theory is um, that, by and large, we never had any revolution in this country, uh, apart from the Eureka Stockade, which was quelled pretty quickly and, and died out. We never had uh, an armed struggle against authority. And so, you know, as much as we like to think that we're, you know, these these larrikins and uh, roustabouts and all the rest of it in Australia, uh, pretty much we, we do historically tend to succumb to authority. And I think that that's what's unfortunately playing out right now. What do you think, uh, Dr. Shavira? Yeah, it's, I've, I mean, that's, it's a, I've thought about that a lot. And, and there are some things about Australia, which sort of as a bundle of, of elements may, do make Australia pretty unique and which may really explain why Australia up until recently, maybe now, you know, a country like Austria has sort of taken over, seem to have just become, seem to have had this in, just incredibly draconian response to COVID. And so I think there are a few reasons. One of them is I think that we're, we're actually, in Australia, we're used to being in control. What do I mean by that? Uh, there's nothing like a little bit of salt water around your country to basically give you an incredible amount of control of what comes into your country. And so, as you know, Australia has some of the strictest quarantine laws in the world. We've got some of the strictest immigration laws in the world. Um, and we're used to basically being in control of our borders. It's not the same over in Europe, for example, where people yeah. movement has historically been far more fluid. And so when COVID starts to hit, I think we felt something that most other countries actually feel all the time and just can, can deal with. But we in Australia just really freaked out and we felt that we had lost control. And so I think that in some ways fed into um, our very sort of draconian response uh, to um, the pandemic in terms of uh, aspiring for COVID zero, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But so, so I think uh, sort of a, a, a loss of a sense of control, which is uniquely Australian. I think that fed into it. But the other thing about sort of Australians is that, you know, as you say, uh, you know, Australians, I mean, many Australians like to think of ourselves as sort of very cynical about government, uh, sort of easygoing, freedom loving, don't tell me what to do. But in actual fact, we, we need to make a very subtle distinction. Australians are actually not remotely cynical about government. Uh, we actually crave government in a way. We're, what we're cynical about is politicians. So Australia finds itself in this very strange uh, situation where you, know, you won't hear Australians say too many good things about politicians, uh, but we love government. And, and we're sort of in this mentality where if there's, there's a problem in society, the first place we look is government. And this is the sort of thing that Robert Menzies uh, sort of warned us about that, you know, you've got to learn to try at the very least to try to solve your problems at the individual responsibility level and at the community level and not constantly refer to government to solve problems. But but what I mean, like historically in Australia, you know, Australia doesn't start off as a, you know, a, a quest for religious liberty 
and a rebellion against uh, uh, monarchical tyranny like, like America, Australia starts off as a penal colony. So we're prisoners governed under martial law. And that martial law lasts for you know, well over a generation uh, in Australia. So many free settlers were used to being governed uh, by, uh, by you know, a, a governor, a military leader. Um, the other thing is that in Australia, we're very used to government just doing things for us in a way that, that states overseas were not used to. So because of what Geoffrey Blaney, the great historian, called the tyranny of distance, a lot of things in Australia which were important for Australian civilization to flourish couldn't be done uh, by the market or by people just on, the, on their own. They had to be done by the government because there weren't enough people here um, to get it done. So, for example, churches for, for, many, uh, for many decades were built, were partially built by governments in Australia because there just weren't enough Australians uh, to get the money together to build the churches themselves. So we became used to the government uh, doing that for us railways and and sort of um and um uh, tech telecommunications infrastructure again because our population was so low and because the the the, the uh, land uh, mass was so large there was just no commercial uh, enterprise in creating railways as there was in england and as there was in america that was done privately but here it was basically done by the government you know early on uh, convicts and others were given land grants by the government so australians have basically sort of historically been conditioned to expect government to do a lot for us. As the great Australian historian um, uh, uh, W.K. Hancock once said, you know, Australians see our government as basically just a vast public utility. Whereas in America, a lot of Americans see government as, as a threat that needs to be kept at bay. And so I think, again, the historical nature of Australians, given those conditions, meant that whereas in other countries you would have had hundreds of thousands of people hitting the streets protesting uh, being locked up in their houses for months on end uh, in Australia a lot of people just not only just accepted that that's just the way it has to be because that's what the government and the experts say we ought to do but they actually actively informed on people who broke the rules they were Crazy. literally calling they were literally calling the police in the tens of thousands dobbing in friends dobbing in uh, associates for breaking the rules it was quite incredible and so and i think yeah yeah, yeah you know <laughs> as a historian i see certain unique historical conditions that that may explain why other countries are now looking at us particularly american just saying what on earth is going on in australia what happened to the crocodile dundee australia <laughs> uh, but but in actual fact that Australian was always a myth. It, it, that was a myth conjured up by people like Henry Lawson, the historian Russell Ward. We like to think of ourselves as larrikins, but in fact, uh, generally speaking, we're quite obedient, we're quite docile, we're quite happy to do what we're told as long as our public services are working tolerably well. So out of that discussion arises two different questions. Uh, one is if there has been some form of crowd madness that has gone on, and I know you're not a psychiatrist, right, but you are a student and a learned student at that uh, at Australian history and at world history. What is it that can lead us out of the madness? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. Look, it, it, it may just be a case of the madness or the, 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 the crowd dynamic just sort of naturally dying down. 
as the COVID threat over time just declines. Uh, and in some ways, that might be taking place in Australia. Um, so it seems to me that... But at the For same example, time, can I push back? Can I push back on yeah, that, Dr. Shapiro? Please. Can I just say, at the same time, that uh, yes, Omicron doesn't se does seem to be speeding up, and, uh, and and a lot of people are being infected. So maybe we're at a peak point. But it's widely known that Omicron is relatively mild, and yet we still have yeah. the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory um, punching down on unvaccinated, yeah. saying that they can't even leave home for work. And last week, uh, we had the Premier of WA, uh, Mark McGowan, uh, come out and say he's going to make life intolerable, basically, for unvaccinated people. So it almost seems there's a doubling down on, on the demonisation of the unvaccinated. And I can only think that's being done because it's politically popular to do so, because it makes no logical sense. Um, and if it's politically popular to do so, that means that uh, people are very, very afraid and they're still looking for that scapegoat or boogeyman that they can blame. So how does that fit in with, with what you've just said? No, look, I completely agree with you about that. Um, I, think, I think that the appetite for lockdowns, for comprehensive lockdowns, uh, has definitely diminished. I think, for example, if any state government said we're going to go into another comprehensive lockdown. I actually think most people this time round would start asking some questions. Um, so I, I do think that aspect of sort of the crowd dynamic that, that emerged, I do think that's diminished. But one thing that has definitely not diminished, in, 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 if anything, uh, George, it's intensified, uh, is the not just the fear, but the anger at the unvaccinated for basically not towing the line, for not you know, being a part of this for basically dissenting. Uh, I, I, I would agree with you that that, if anything, has intensified. And I do think that there's a tremendous amount of, of scapegoating going on in Australia. I mean, everyone knows that the people spreading uh, the virus right now are vaccinated Australians. It's something like, Correct. you know, uh, Australia is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got tens of thousands of cases of COVID in Australia right now, actually hundreds of thousands of cases of COVID, the overwhelming, you know, of it, you know, Omicron. It's, it's, the, it's the vaccinated spreading it. Uh, and of course, you know, a lot of people don't want to take that kind of responsibility. So what they will do is they, instead of focusing on the fact that the vaccinated are spreading uh, the, the virus, they'll point out that well, maybe you know, most of the people wind up in, winding up in hospital are unvaccinated, even though in actual fact, the number of unvaccinated winding up in hospital is actually quite small. And the hospital system is easily able to cope with you know, the numbers of people going into uh, going into a hospital at the moment. It's easily able to cope uh, because the numbers are nothing like uh, what they were a while ago, people actually going to hospital. Now, I, I do think that is something that has, has retained a kind of anger, uh, and and sort of a, and sense of um, and, and a, a sense of, of sort of scapegoating uh, towards the vaccinated, and that is something that I can't see uh, going away. And I actually do think really? that, that reveal. No, I, I I don't think that will go away. I think there will always be a stigma in Australia for those who did not take the vaccine, unless the wow. only the only thing that would take that away is if the vaccines turned out to be absolutely catastrophic for it with some for some side effect that they might have had or 
that it becomes very well known at some point down the track that in fact there was something seriously really seriously wrong with them that uh wasn't properly being reported at the time and 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 i i don't i don't certainly that latter that there is something wrong with them that is being underreported right now uh, for example uh uh, pericarditis or, or among youth who are being vaccinated. I don't rule that. I don't rule that that uh, possibility out. And there are many, uh, you know, very learned and well qualified uh, scientists and doctors uh, around the world warning about that right now. But yeah. again, to, to sort of go, go down the history path very briefly, if I was to liken again the current attitude towards the unvaxxed to anything in history. The, the, again, another thing that I can think of is attitudes in a, what was it, about 1980 towards Lindy Chamberlain and the Chamberlains. Uh, you know, all you know, so many Australians were convinced that Lindy, Lindy Chamberlain killed her baby. Why? Yep. Well, because uh, she was a strange woman. You know, she didn't act like a woman should act. She was very stoical. She didn't show that much emotion, and she belonged to some strange sect that wasn't the Church of England or, or the Catholic Church or a major Protestant denomination. It was the Seventh-day Adventists. And, and who were they? That's some sort of cult. This was a lady who did not conform. She was eccentric. And it brought out the, the worst in Australians, which is basically a, a, a hatred of nonconformism. Uh, now, I, I love Australia. Wow. And I, I, do, I do love Australians, but we are not perfect. Every country has its flaws. And I do think that in Australia... Uh, one of our flaws is that we can take a, a very strong group mentality and really demonize people who don't quite fit in. And definitely the Lindy Chamberlain episode was, was an instance of, of, a, of, an, of an innocent woman being demonized all around Australia intensely by people who'd never even met her. Why? Because she was different. And, I, and, and Australians have, have, a, have a great capacity. Uh, they have a great capacity to demonize. Uh, uh, particularly people who are a little bit different. Um, and I, I, and it's, it's, in some ways, it's part of the whole tall poppy syndrome, George. You know, we're, we're legendary for basically uh, sort of punching up to people who achieve a lot, uh, you know, because they are different. They, they stand above everyone else in their achievements. And Australians, historically at least, maybe it's changing, a bit, but historically they have instinctively not liked that. They have not liked people that sort of stand out. And that's why actually a lot of our most eccentric performers have actually found uh, better off making a living overseas than, than here in Australia. They often, they traditionally used to go to England um, because they, you know, the Australians just didn't uh, understand them and they became, of course, you know, very, very uh, famous. But, but no, do I think that the, that the hostility towards the vaccinated, well, not the hostility, but the distrust and the stigma of being unvaccinated will ever go away? I don't think it will. I think over time it, it will sort of diminish uh, in the same way that, you know, the people who saw those not going to World War One as traitors over time, the the hostility towards them diminished, but it never, ever went away. Menzies, uh, you know, didn't go to war. And in 1939, so, you know, 20 years later, when he declared, well, 25 years later, when he declared that Australia was going to war with Germany, many people said this man should not be leading the country. He's a, he's a coward. So I don't think the stigma will ever go away. But that, in a, in a sense, is, is very Australian. Wow, that's uh, pretty bleak. Uh, so it leads me to the second question, though. Uh, given that Australians, in your opinion, have this sort of love of government uh, uh, that is so intertwined with society, as a, as a scholar, 
Allah, in political studies, uh, don't you see that as a danger point for this country? I mean, uh, the Americans have it right, in my opinion, to distrust government because, um, you know, you rely on government for too much, then at some point you're going to become subservient to government. So I think we've already seen it uh, to a great degree in this pandemic. But uh, what's your view, Dr. Shavira? I, I definitely think that this pandemic uh, you know, showed that uh, yeah, Australians were too easy uh, to allow governments to uh, introduce sort of snap laws taking away their liberty. So I do think that this pandemic showed the dangers of basically becoming complacent and, and, and judging a good government based solely on its ability to deliver services um, rather than you know, on its on its ability to preserve and promote uh, freedoms and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, I mean, do I think Australians like being governed? I think Australians are used to being governed. I don't even think they think about it all that much. I think what they like is, is an, an understanding that there are going to be all these services provided by the government. And I think what that does is it creates a character that is very, very, uh, docile and 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 far more open uh, to the sorts of violations of people's liberties that we've experienced over the last two years uh, than otherwise. So I do actually think that it's times like this in COVID that show uh, how dangerous it can be to be yeah too trusting of governments and 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 dare I say too trusting of experts and, and technocrats. Mm -hmm. And and I do think that is something that Australians. Uh, ha have become, and uh, the evidence of that is, is again, the fact that in Australia, we had people locked up for months on ends. The Melbourne, the Victorians were locked up for 200 days. Children kept out of school for months and Crazy. months on end. Crazy. It's incredible. Uh, but, but here's the other incredible thing. Uh, once the vaccine was being rolled out, even those double vaccinated, which at the time was considered fully vaccinated, you're no longer a threat yep. to society, even they were still locked up for at least a month mm -hmm. beyond that. And, and, and basically, that the person, the people that they blamed were not the governments locking them up, but the unvaccinated for being too yeah. slow or being vaccinated. Former Stockholm syndrome, I, I, I believe. Uh, the Melbourne syndrome, I think they call it these days. Um, <laughs> Scapegoating, so, too. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, uh, look, uh, I, I want to just push on that uh, final point about government overreach. I mean, again, as a student of history, do you see that this pandemic may have paved the way for future incursions on our freedoms and liberties? I mean, just a, a minor one, uh, this tracing system, the QR code scanning, uh, there have been uh, state um, chief health officers, notably the uh, one in South Australia, who said that this should be retained forever. I mean, that's something that I have a great visceral aversion to, the idea that my movements are going to be traced forever and a day by government. They don't need to know where I'm going, who I'm going to see. Um, but yet here we've got uh, bureaucrats, nonetheless than the head of health departments, actually saying this should be a permanent thing. I, I find all this very, very frightening. It's like we're being primed or prepped or conditioned to accept yeah. more government interference in our life, less privacy. Uh, what do you think? 
No, I actually agree. And Dan Andrews himself a few months ago said, look, we didn't establish all this, um, all this legal, uh, medical, technocratic scaffolding to monitor people and to, um, and to sort of make sure that you know, society remains healthy. We didn't establish this just to take it down you know, in a few weeks. And he clearly said that this is going to be something that's in place for years. Um, and I absolutely do think that some of it will remain in place. And if it, for, for example, it wouldn't surprise me if basically Australians become used to uh, employers making more demands on them in the workplace in terms of things like vaccinations, that that may actually um, turn out to be something that, you know, becomes a sort of just a, per a permanent place uh, in sort of a Australian industrial relations tradition where employers just sort of demand you've got to get you've got to get a flu shot or you've got to get that's this a or you've got to get that. That's a, that's a, a regression, oh, I, I, that's a, a regression going back to almost uh, uh, the, the, the situation where employees are basically the, the chattel of their employees. Uh, well, that's, crazy well that's it. I, I'm, I'm just amazed that in a, this is the same Australia that um, in 2007, uh, you know, apparently voted out the Howard government after 11 years of economic prosperity, apparently because of work choices. And <laughs> work choices was all about bosses not being... Yeah, yeah. Now that people are basically happy um, to for bosses basically to say to people, if you don't take this vaccine that you probably don't even need, uh, you're going to lose your job. And and I, I've heard stories of I, I get people contacting me every day, telling me stories about work, losing their jobs or what happened at their work about this. And, and, and some of them have said at their workplace, they, they, they sort of had a vote and and, and there was sort of a, a majority vote among sort of among the colleagues to, to impose a vaccine mandate at the workplace. And it was like, well, why? If, if, why are those who are happy to get vaccinated and therefore safe are determined to impose a vaccine mandate on everyone else? It, it just makes no sense. But this actually could be one of the aggressive aspects of, of what happens. But, but forget, about, um, forget about whether we actually experience these incursions into our liberty on a daily basis. The point, George, is that the scaffolding or the framework now is there, it's in place, it can be called up anytime. Um, yep. and, and one of the dangerous things, George, is that the constant use nowadays of terms like emergency and crisis. And we, we know historically, going back to the days of ancient Rome, that if, if you wanna suspend law, if you wanna suspend people's civil rights, all you do is declare an emergency, whether it's about warfare, whether it's about a famine, whether it's about a virus, and it basically justifies governments to um, uh, summarily impose restrictions on people's liberties. And, and we're, we're, we're just using the language of crisis so readily nowadays. So, you know, we talk about a climate crisis. By the way, Adam Bant, the Greens uh, senator, uh, wrote a journal article, wrote a, a journal article uh, some years back on the idea of uh, the state of, of a state of emergency. And what he talks about in this journal article is sort of being able to use a state of, of emergency to liberate people, to liberate them from, from sort of capitalistic excess and, and things like that. <laughs> a really weird article. And so, um, you know, I think that the danger is that we just become used to talking about emergencies. We've got a climate emergency. Black Lives Matter was, was spoken about as some kind of, you know, um, a crisis of racism, uh, justifying all sorts of weird measures like defunding the police and, and, and um, justifying uh, violence and things like that. So 
there's a genuine fear that, or a genuine concern, I should say, that people ought to have, that the, the, the vocabulary of crisis and emergency just becomes a permanent fixture of our politics. And of course, the next big thing will be the climate crisis and exactly what technocrats are going to justify for that, we're yet to see. Yeah, well, uh, that uh, could be coming down the track. Uh, and I think we need to be all the more vigilant about it to ensure that uh, it doesn't happen. And the only way we can do that is by keeping on speaking out. And I hope you keep on speaking out uh, from your position of expertise there in history and politics. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked. Thank you very much, George. It was a pleasure. Conservative One Pandemic Unmasked is hosted by George Christensen, MP. You can find more episodes from this series at goodsource.news forward slash unmasked. This show is produced and published without censorship or paywall by the team at The Good Source, thanks to The Good Source supporters. If you'd like to be part of the solution by helping us produce more truthful content like this each month, head to goodsource.news and click on the support button. Make sure to follow George Christensen on Telegram, Getter, Gab, Parler, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. You can also help us beat the algorithms by giving us five stars and encouraging comments in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.